0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It's Friday, June 3rd, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with CJ Bonifati filling in for Nick today. CJ, what's going on, man?
1: Well, they say the devil works hard, but Nicky G works harder. A very well-earned vacation for the kid himself. I'm just happy to be filling it.
0: We are happy to have you back. Happy to have an all-star cast of friends to join in when Nick wants to go gallivant in Italy without me. So, uh, yeah, not bitter.
1: What a, ro- what a romantic <laughs> man gallivanting through Italy. I've been to Italy before and not once did I gallivant. So now I feel like I have to go back.
0: All right. Uh, TPT summer 2023 goal is we're going to gallivant
1: gallivanting together. through coastal Europe together. <laughs> New podcast. Who does
0: <laughs> sign me up? All right. Let's get into this podcast that the people came here for now. Here on the planet today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, let's get into our quick hits of the week.
1: All right. Yes, the quick hits, the fabled quick hits. Our first one is by NPR's Dustin Jones, who writes, scientists discover an ancient forest inside a giant sinkhole in China.
0: Wake up, bestie. New forest just dropped. In early May, cave explorers discovered a prehistoric forest at the bottom of a sinkhole in South China. The sinkhole is roughly 630 feet deep, and the bottom of the pit is home to an ancient forest spanning nearly three football fields in length with trees over 100 feet high, according to NPR. This is one of 30 sinkholes in China, according to the Chinese government.
1: Yeah, the sinkhole's made up of karst topography, which makes sinkholes more common because groundwater dissolves the limestone underneath the ground surface. About 13% of China is covered by karst landscapes.
0: Back home in the States, 20% of the U.S. is covered by karst, including Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. So those are two geological wonders uh, that have occurred because of the karst landscapes and that doesn't happen everywhere there's karst. It's all really dependent on the climate that's around that landscape. Some karst landscapes barely have any noticeable differences, whereas some are 360 feet deep with ancient forests in them.
1: I mean, that's amazing. I'm buying a house right now, and you're telling me that there could just be a giant forest underneath it?
0: That would be, uh, would you get into spelunking?
1: Well, obviously, but you're saying 20%, so one in five chance that my condo sinks into an ancient forest, and I have to play out my fantasy as some sort of rpg hero
0: uh i would like to say yes but i think it's you know it's very dependent on the climate and i'm gonna assume since there's no giant sinkholes around where we live Uh, We probably don't have to worry about that. (laughs)
1: It's kind of amazing, though, how uh, vast those ecosystems can be. I mean, I've seen pictures and videos of some of the cave systems and the types of creatures and plants that Mm -hmm. uh, exist down there. Uh, It's amazing how much of the world we don't know anything
0: about. Yeah, and that's a really good point, too. And a lot of people will bring that up with the oceans because of just how deep and vast and unexplored they are. But there's a lot of places on the land that (laughs) are also as deep as vast and as unexplored, just like this ancient forest in a sinkhole. And the discovery of this sinkhole really begs the question how long until humans start exploiting this forest for money?
1: The next one's titled Shell Escaped Liability for Oil Spills in Nigeria for Years. Then four farmers took them to court, and one by Nimi Princewell and Christina Shavida of CNN. I'm so sorry if I butchered your names.
0: <laughs> I am. Um, Gonna go out and say that they're probably not listening to this, but if they are, our apologies. If they are, we're sorry. I'd <laughs> love to hear a story about a major corporation losing in court, and Chima Williams, a Nigerian environmental lawyer, launched a lawsuit 13 years ago against Shell. The lawsuit was over oil spills that destroyed local farmlands that were caused by Shell Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria, or SPDC. A quote from the article that I wanted to point out is The suit against Shell Nigeria was brought by four farmers from the Goi and Uroma communities in the country's oil-rich but impoverished Niger Delta region, who said their farmers were left in ruins after major spills from underground pipelines. What's significant here is that this case is the first time that Shell was able to be sued in its home country of the Netherlands for the actions of one of its subsidiaries in this case SBDC.
1: Right. And uh, Shell was held liable for the oil spills and had to pay damages to the farmers in January of 2021 and also had to perform an intensive cleanup of the damages. For his work, Williams was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize for holding the company accountable for its environmental
0: damage. Shells argued that the case should be tried in Nigeria and said that it was not responsible for the spills. It actually claimed that they were sabotaged. Williams had argued that the parent company had, quote, authority flow to the subsidiary, which meant they could not be removed from the damages caused, even though the parent company didn't play a direct role. Shell had said that they were disappointed that the courts ruled in favor of the farmers because the spills were, again, not their fault. And they reiterated that they were the victims of sabotage.
1: Listen, listen, (laughs) if you're going to have like tanks of oil, something that could cause this much harm the planet you gotta sabotage proof your stuff you gotta sabotage proof it like i get that yeah maybe they're telling the truth but we treat crude oil like it's water yeah the way we store it the way we transport it we treat it like water and maybe uh hopefully this could be a wake-up call to companies uh to take more responsibility for the way they store And transport
0: oil. Yeah, and and that's a really good point. I, I do hope that this does set a precedent because at this point, oil spills are not that uncommon. I would go as far as to say they're pretty common. And every single oil spill is going to have really drastic impacts on the local environment. Or what's even worse is if it gets into a waterway that transports that oil, and all of a sudden you're not just impacting the local area. You're impacting everything that's downstream of that. And just for a scale of reference here, Shell is the largest oil company in the Niger Delta, where residents face high poverty rates and an already degraded environment, in part because of the hundreds of oil spills that happen every single year in that region. Now, Shell has claimed that 95% of those spills are because of theft or sabotage by locals, which they say only happens in Nigeria.
1: Well, I'm not going to get into the uh, racial undertones of a statement like that. Yeah. But what I will say is that the, um, the precedent this is setting is huge. Uh, being able to fight and win a suit in the home country of a major uh, corporation like this, um, it may not set a precedent for American-based companies. Um, because the American courts will probably go out of their way to protect their corporate overlords. Yes. But winning a victory in Europe is still absolutely massive.
0: Yeah. And something that I'd like to point out is, look, even if that is the case and these are sabotaged, you know, 95 percent of spills are sabotage here. Maybe be proactive and do something to prevent sabotage or prevent theft from locals. And if it's only happening in Nigeria, why is that? you know like what what are you doing differently there that is leading (laughs) to sabotage ask yourself
1: why people feel the need to steal from you and sabotage you Hmm, i wonder Hmm, i wonder why (laughs) people feel the need to steal from us maybe we're not providing them with good enough jobs why do they feel as though they need to sabotage us maybe because we might not be uh, treating them proper them or their environment uh, properly and they really don't want us around so maybe instead of casting blame here shell Uh, uh uh take a look at yourself
0: yeah especially for like we said the largest oil company in the niger delta and that's a region where poverty rates are high and the environment is degraded so yeah maybe if people are stealing from you or sabotaging you take a look at what you're doing that might cause people to be extremely resentful of what you're doing to their land and to their people and maybe there's your answer All right, our next quick hit is by Henry Fountain of the New York Times, who writes, Jimmy Carter, at 97, steps into a big fight over a small road in Alaska.
1: A gravel road near the Aleutian Islands has been proposed for the past few decades to connect an airport, but it is proposed to cut through a federal wildlife refuge. It's a small project with huge environmental implications, which is why it's been at a standstill. Nearby residents and political leaders in the state argue that the road will ensure people can get emergency medical care. Conservation groups say the project is less about health care and more about transporting salmon and workers in King Cove.
0: Environmentalists also add that it would put the Ismbeck National Wildlife Refuge and 300,000 acres of unique habitat for migratory waterfowl, bears, and other animals at risk. This could gut a landmark federal law that protected the refuge and 100 million more acres of public land in Alaska. The Trump administration ruled that the road could go through, and the Biden administration recently upheld this ruling. President Jimmy Carter, at age 97, supported an appeal by conservation groups to have a larger panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rehear this case. He wrote that the earlier ruling by a three-judge panel is quote not only deeply mistaken. It's dangerous. The panel voted two to one to uphold the land deal with two Trump appointed judges in favor. When Jimmy Carter was president, he pushed for and signed the law that banned roads through this wildlife reserve. And the proposed road would be 40 miles long between King Cove and Cold Bay and would fix an issue that residents have with getting their loved ones to hospitals during bad storms, which former mayor of the community, Henry Mack, says are pretty frequent. The issue here is that 11 miles of this proposed road would be cutting through the refuge.
1: Yeah, and uh, alternatives had been proposed over the past several years, including an all-weather ferry and a dedicated helicopter service. Years ago, the Obama administration's Congress approved a land swap to allow the road to go through the refuge, but land elsewhere that was owned by the state or local government would be protected instead.
0: That was then rejected by the Interior Secretary Sally Jewell, who found that it would cause irreversible damage to the refuge and to its wildlife. So it wasn't as simple as a one-to-one land swap the way that some had hoped.
1: The Trump administration revived the idea of a land swap, which was brought to court again in 2020. Three appeals court judges found that the value of the road to the King Cove community was greater than the harm to the environment.
0: President Carter, on the other hand, argued that the reasoning was flawed because the law he signed many years ago did not give the Secretary of the Interior discretion to consider economic and or social benefits. The law was designated by Congress for conservation and subsistence use by rural residents. That's it. The reason this is being discussed is
1: because, if successful, this would basically allow the Secretary of the Interior to just redraw boundaries of national parks, refuges, and wilderness areas for economic purposes. This is still in the Court of Appeals, so we'll just have to wait and see what the outcome is here.
0: Yeah, it's tough because I do understand that in an area like this where it's tough to get medical care, why people would need emergency medical care. Like that's a very important consideration when planning for a town. On the other hand, these are critical habitats that we can't just cut through and assume that, you know, it's gonna restore itself. So I feel for the people, genuinely. And at the same time, I hope that the salmon, the waterfowl, the bears, all those animals that rely on this area as their home aren't put in further danger because of 11 miles of road.
1: Exactly, and you know, at the end of the day, we we were talking about precedent before. This sets that dangerous precedent, Mm -hmm. right? If, if If we redraw the lines in this instance, What's to stop a radical secretary from redrawing national park lines for oil drilling? Um, I know it sounds like we're comparing apples to oranges, but this is a semi-public story, something that we're aware of because it's sort of a human interest. Do you save human lives or do you save the environment? Um, And that can be debated, but what we don't hear about are the decisions made every day where we're choosing to line the pockets of the fossil fuel industry at the cost of the environment so if if this goes the wrong way we may not even um, really know about some of the consequences until it's already too late
0: yeah it's just you know like you said one of those things where this scenario this ruling here might not be as important as some might argue but what it could lead to is completely redrawing our national parks and all of a sudden critical habitats for the American bison in Yellowstone are no longer protected. That way we can drill for oil. I don't know. My, my general rule of thumb is on any sort of environmental or social uh, cause to err on the side of Jimmy Carter it is usually, uh, <laughs> it's usually on the right side of history for most of those, most of those topics. <laughs>
1: 97 years old and still fighting the good fight he's like he's still like,
0: building houses with habitat for humanity even
1: captain america retired like <laughs> this guy's a machine
0: that's america's ass and this is america's president
1: <laughs> this is america he really is america's president
0: all right unlike jimmy carter we're about to take a break and when we get back two more quick hits for you Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Go check them out, Valaalta. To the planet today everyone next up climate change made india and pakistan's intense spring heat wave more likely by time magazines and aruda gossel
1: if you thought it was hot here in the northeast this past weekend well the past few months have seen a heat wave devastate india and pakistan international scientists warn it is a sneak peek into the region's future as climate change continues to get worse
0: According to the World Weather Attribution Group, early, long heat waves that impact a massive geographical area are rare once per century events. Climate change has made those heat waves 30 times more likely. That means that if global warming increases to 2 degrees Celsius, we can expect the twice per century heat waves to occur up to once every five years.
1: The United Kingdom's Meteorological Office said that the heat waves could happen once every three years, so things are not looking great either way. This spring has been brutal for the region, as temperatures were consistently above 45 degrees centigrade, 113 degrees Fahrenheit, people, in the past weeks.
0: Yeah, and in Pakistan, it was more of the same, where temperatures over 50 degrees Celsius, or 122 degrees Fahrenheit, were recorded in some places like Jacobabad and Dadu. New Delhi, India's capital, saw temperatures reaching 49 degrees Celsius, which is 120 degrees Fahrenheit this month. This year was the hottest March in Indian history since they began keeping records in 1901, and April was the warmest in Pakistani history, and the same for parts of India.
1: This caused a glacier to burst in Pakistan, increasing flooding downstream, and the high temperatures caused wheat crops to burn leading to India banning exports to countries that are currently facing food shortages due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
0: Yeah, this is kind of a a very serious issue, if not for the environmental ramifications, but also because of the food insecurity ramifications. Uh, Ukraine is one of the leading wheat producers in the world, for anyone unaware. And now you have another major wheat producer banning exports because they need to feed their people, too. So at least 90 people have now died from heat-related deaths, but officials say that this is likely an undercount due to the region's death registration process.
1: Yeah, uh, this whole story is horrible to hear, and obviously it's easy to think, okay, that's in Southern Asia. It's obviously very warm there. Will this happen, something similar happen in uh, you know, the northeastern United States? The, the answer is probably not within our lifetime mm-hmm. but you know what we can expect within our lifetime mass exodus from India and Pakistan uh, one of the most populous regions in the world um, becoming uninhabitable by human beings during the spring and summer months and that that will impact everybody uh, it's, that's not just an over there problem, it will quickly become our problem too
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And you think about the impacts of climate change, whether it's drought, whether it's flood, whether it's increasing heat, whether it's glacial melt and uh, causing the sea levels to rise. All of those things are going to impact areas of the world and make them either unlivable or a lot less fun to live in. So in an area here where all of a sudden, food production is going to get a lot harder. Also, glaciers melting in some of those mountainous regions, it's going to cause all the rivers to rise a little bit. It's going to cause the oceans to rise a little bit. And it's going to make the land that you can still farm on a lot more difficult to farm. It's also going to get hotter. It's going to make it so, like you said, people are going to look for a more livable environment. And, you know, with with the refugee system as it is, a lot of people get really mad when people are like, hey, I need help, please help me and take me into your country. Imagine what that's going to be like when you have all these climate refugees on top of political refugees.
1: All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from Mother Jones, where Helena Horton writes, Climate Denial Group is masquerading as a charity, critics say.
0: Yeah, we saved this story for last because uh, this is probably going to get me and CJ a little fired up. So as always, buckle up. The Global Warming Policy Foundation is a climate skeptic think tank that was recently reported to the UK Charity Commission by Green Party Member of Parliament Caroline Lucas and Extinction Rebellion. The think tank currently has charitable status, but climate activists say it should be stripped of this title due to its funding from fossil fuel interests. Signatories of the letter to the Charity Commission say that the GWPF is not a charity, but a lobby group.
1: The letter also claims that the think tank disregards the rules that charities must be run for the public good. The commission states that a purpose must be beneficial. This must be in a way that is identifiable and capable of being proved by evidence where necessary and which is not based on personal views. The letter's signatories say that the GWPF works against the public need to prepare, mitigate, and adapt to the ongoing climate crisis?
0: Yeah, it's it's very frustrating for me, because you're looking at something where, you know, in good faith, there's probably people who see, oh, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, they're probably doing something good, and they donate to this what they think is a charity, when in reality, it's just a think tank that's pumping more fossil fuel ideas into the, into the public, which we could talk all about how dangerous that is, but yeah, for, for now, let's dive more into this. The U.S. wing of this foundation, it's not just a U.K. think tank. The U.S. wing has $30 million worth of shares in 22 energy companies, including $9 million in ExxonMobil and $5.7 million in Chevron, according to its financial filings. They've also received hundreds of thousands of dollars over the past four years during campaign cycles to help lobby from the Sarah Scaife Foundation, which was set up by the heir to an oil and banking industry. Anyone that is that heavily linked to fossil fuels and I'm going to actually take that back. Anyone that is linked to fossil fuels and still pumping money into keeping them a major factor is not acting in the public good which is what is supposed to be required of charitable organizations in the UK.
1: You want to know what really sucks about this? You want to know what, you want to know what really sucks? This, this is the fossil fuel industry fighting with their mask on. Mm-hmm. Now, before we said the evidence needs to be not based on personal views, And you know what these people, when the mask comes off, are going to say that believing that climate change is affecting the public good is a personal view. And they'll probably win. And that's what sucks. Yeah, it, it's
0: very it sounds very cynical, but I tend to think you're being very realistic there where, like you said, it's it's probably going to be the case where it's tough to change a system that has worked for a lot of people in power for a long time. And unfortunately, this system isn't working for the planet as a whole. And in doing so, it's not working for the people It's not working for the animals. It's not working for the plants. It's not working for the water of this planet that people have been exploiting for, I don't know, hundreds of years at this point for their own good. So for them to say that they are acting in the public good by making more money, sure. But what are we going to do when we get to a point where it's not livable anymore? Like who is going to buy your oil that you're continuing to pump?
1: yeah this is definitely going to be an interesting story uh to follow especially if it ends up going uh to the courts. so uh those of you listening who are um in sort of a show hole after the depth and Heard trial has now wrapped up uh, uh we're feeding you over here on the planet today here here's a good one uh to follow because it it, it will definitely um It'll be more interesting and probably impact your life uh, a a teeny bit more, a teeny bit
0: more. Yeah, as much as that really swept the media cycle, this is probably one that, if it goes to the courts, is, is going to deserve a lot more media coverage than we know it's gonna get. Because at the end of the day, this is a topic that everyone should have information on. And it should be really easy and accessible information. And unfortunately, I don't think that's gonna be the case. So we will do our best to keep up with what's going on here. Um, and, and hopefully we don't have to, you know, hopefully this is something that's getting a lot of press that, Hey, this charitable foundation is not doing what it's claiming to be doing. And that's a big deal. That's like, we've been saying with other stories today, a precedent setter where all of a sudden, if you are a charitable organization, that's claiming to be about global warming, you have to be doing the right thing and not just the thing that's going to be making you money. And I know I alluded to this earlier, but yeah, it's really frustrating for something like this to come out because there are definitely people who don't know much about climate change, but they care about climate change. So they look for a charity to donate to and they say, oh, the Global Warming Policy Foundation sounds like it's probably helping us because the name does sound like it's helping us. And that's the mask that CJ brought up earlier, where it's just blatant deception of people. And that lovely tangent, my friends, will do it for today's episode of The Planet Today. On Monday, we'll be back for our Monday mini that we do for the first Monday episode of every month.
1: It'll be about the European Union's decision to ban oil and gas imports from Russia over the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. Nick Janusa produces our show, unless he's in Italy, and then I do it, but he still makes all of our music. Go check him out at soundcloudcom budlincape, and that's B U D L Y N C A P E. CJ, where can people keep up with you?
1: Uh, I'm on. I'm on Twitch. I'm on Twitter. Uh, look for the Honorable Cal. That is the Honorable K A L L for all the latest hot takes uh, and and NFT dunks
0: and Dungeons and Dragons dungeon mastery. So if you're looking for a DM, hit my boy
1: up. I promise to only make like every other episode about our burning planet. <laughs>
0: Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. See ya!